Again, we're uh, continuing our study uh, through 1 Samuel as we kind of come to a, a close of 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapters 29 and 30 this evening. <clears throat> uh, as you see, 29 is only 11 verses, and um, so we're kind of combining them into one. And the general flow uh, of both of these uh, really work as one cohesive unit. <clears throat> So again, we'll be looking at uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 29 all the way through the end of chapter 30. <clears throat> Hear now the words of the one and only living true God. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. <clears throat> As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? who had been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go, he shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right, that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to this battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, 
and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And da David went to, said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, where they had, <clears throat> uh, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred men stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open, in the open country, and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, 
he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from the day, from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for Lord, it was for those in Bethel, and Ramoth of the Negev, and Jatir, and Arur, and Sifmoth, and Esmoa, and Rakal, and the cities of the Jeremites, and the cities of the Canaanites, and Hormah, and Borshan, and Athic, and Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is God's word. <clears throat> Again, just a, a brief review of uh, where we are so far in the text. We're nearly at the end of Saul's life. Um, we have seen the demise of Saul as his time in kingship is about to end, and uh, the new king who God had already anointed is about to uh, step forward. And David himself really points us to Christ in many ways. Uh, he shows us that although David himself experienced uh, great difficulties, he's reliant upon the Lord. He seeks the Lord to strengthen him. Uh, and David receives his strength uh, because of his commitment to the Lord his God, unlike Saul who wanted to uh, seek the necromancer, the medium, in order to hear from the Lord. David himself finds strength in the Lord. Uh, so first, we're going to look at this evening the great blessing of providence in 1 Samuel 29. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, powerful preserving and governing of all things, his creatures, and all their actions. Providence is truly a, a wonderful thing. It is the assurance that God takes control of all lives in, or all of the matters in our lives from big to small. And as much as we as sinful creatures muddy that up, God himself always has a plan in store for us. And the same here is true about David in this passage. If you remember... Uh, David was an outcast to his own people as Saul was actively trying to destroy him and kill him. And now David is taking refuge with the Philistines, an enemy of Israel, with Achish, as a way of him preserving his own life. If you remember 1 Samuel 28, 1 through 2, it says, In those days... The Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Uh, so it's kind of ironic. David is such an outcast amongst Israel that he can't even find solitude and safety amongst his own people. He's now 
finding solitude and safety in his enemies, the very people he sought to destroy years later. And even the Philistine commanders, after he buddies up with Achish, they realize uh, who this man is. Uh, They're saying, this is David. This is the great military hero of Israel. Uh, Achish, do you know, do you understand who is here amongst you? He will surely strike us down. They even uh, quote in verse 5 that that often said it, kind of parable or a song, song to the people, uh, David, of whom they sing, Saul has down, struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. So David was a far more superior military commander, and his renown stretched cross-culture. Even the, even the Philistines knew who this man was. And even Achish recognized this truth, but through God's providence, allowed David to kind of come under his wing and offer protection to David. He says in verse 9, he even recognizes uh, David's salt and light, if you will, how David presented himself amongst these pagans. He says in verse 9, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. So even though David had to retire as Achish's Uh, Achish's bodyguard, he nonetheless made a very significant impact on this man's life. And should this not also be our demeanor as we go out into the world? If we reflect back on our lives, we see the various ways that God has led us in his own providence to bring you to where you are now, to place you there in the very seats that you're sitting in, God has worked this and manifested this. He has shaped us and molded us like the potter shapes and molds clay into a beautiful vessel. And God has brought us into the place we are now to demonstrate our love for God, to be salt and to be light, to proclaim the goodness of God. Whether you are a soldier, God has placed you in the military, Uh, to be that salt and light. Uh, Whether you're a husband or a wife in your family, uh, again, you are to be that representative of Christ in your family unit. If you are an engineer, a a medical worker, wherever God has called you, you are to be salt and light for his kingdom. And we really get the great privilege, don't we, at, at looking back and seeing God's hand in all aspects of our life. Our lives are not just meaningless. We're not a bunch of rogue molecules just bouncing about through space, as many of the secular institutions would have us believe. We're created with a purpose. What's man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are created for that very purpose of worshiping and honoring God. We have meaning. We have purpose in the Lord alone. So it's such a great blessing of providence that although we may befriend enemies, God still sustains us, God still keeps us and holds us dear. We'll look secondly at finding strength in the Lord in 1 Samuel 30 verses 1 through 6. And so again, 
We're at the point in the story uh, where David has now left the company of Achish, and now he's going back to his hometown of Ziklag. Uh, it's a fairly decent walk. It'd be uh, basically the equivalent of us walking from Hebron down to Bublingen, about 80 to 100 kilometers. Uh, so it's not a simple, easy walk back to his homeland. It's quite uh, treacherous in a long uh, way. And this very territory, if you remember, is where David was allotted uh, via Achish in 1 Samuel 27, verse 6. So again, David's in exile from his own people, and he's being given a portion of land uh, in order for him to dwell. It says, So that day Achish gave him, that is David, Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So essentially David is journeying back to his homeland. He can't find refuge with the Philistines, and so now he's going back to his homeland. However, as we see in the text, the Amalekites have now taken advantage of the fact that David is absent. And they go and they destroy the city. They take captive all of their possessions. They take into captivity all the people that were living there, including David's wives. I think we can uh, sympathize with David and his companions to uh, their natural reaction to this. They begin weeping until they have no more strength left in them. David is a sojourner. He's an exile. He's an outcast. Uh, he can't travel with the Philistines. He just wants to go back home. And now his home is destroyed. His wives are gone. All of their possessions the soldiers, wives, and children are gone as well. And sometimes we, as Christians, we don't realize that it's okay to weep. It's okay to allow ourselves to, to feel the unrightness of the world. As we read this morning, right, the creation groans, waiting for that full redemption. Although we are glorified positionally in Christ, we're still awaiting for this full redemption. We're longing for home. We weep and lament because we know that this present world isn't like how things should be. We feel that, but a lament is simply the language of suffering and asking questions to God. It's not a sin to lament. It's not a sin to feel. Often we have to feel. It, it identifies that we are created in God's image. Hence, we can cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 77, verses 1 through 2. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Or like Psalm 86, verses 14 through 15. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set before you. But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, we can cry out like Jesus did on the cross. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. It's the natural disposition as children of God to cry out to their father, to seek him when they're hurting, when they're struggling. And just as David cried out to the Lord, we also cry out to our God when we face struggles, when we face injustices, when we face persecutions of all sorts. Not only is David in lament from what had occurred, being in the safety of his homeland, but also because of the reaction of the people. They were willing to stone David, to put him to death because of what happened. And David's distress was not only because of what had happened in Ziklag, but also his own people's reaction. <clears throat> and we really see this also in our own lives as leaders in various aspects. Uh, parents, how often do you receive persecution because you are raising your children in a godly home? You are raising your children transculturally. You are raising your children how you ought to, to love the Lord, their God, with all their mind, strength, body, and soul, their whole being. Leaders often endure hardship on behalf of their own people. A good leader takes upon himself the blows for their people. And you can probably see where this is going. Is this not true also of our Lord? Is this not true also that our God came in the person and work of Jesus Christ and took upon himself the totality of sin. He himself took the blows on our behalf. He led us to still waters by incurring for himself the debt of sin. The prophet Isaiah says in uh, 53, 4 through 5, surely he, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so like David, Christ also solely relied upon God for his strength. Verse 6 ends saying, David strengthened himself in the Lord. If the Lord was sufficient for David, should not the Lord also be sufficient for us when we need to be strengthened? Or better yet, if Christ himself knew that the Father was perfectly sufficient for him to endure the trials upon the wilderness in his earthly ministry, in the garden of Gethsemane, and on the cross, should we not also seek the Father, find refuge in our strength and our hope as well? The strength of the Lord is what enabled us to endure. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or Psalm 73, 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or the famous quote from Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We find strength in the Lord alone. And third, we're going to look at showing Christ-like mercy in 1 Samuel 30, verses 7 through 15. So now David is uh, strengthened by the Lord. And so he goes and inquires of the priest, Abiathar, to see what should do, what he should do next. What, what's the next step that I should do in order to overcome this? And there's a, a stark contrast between 1 Samuel 28 and Saul's demeanor and 1 Samuel 30 with David's demeanor. So what did Saul do? Saul was not receiving anything from the Lord. He wasn't getting visions. The priests weren't speaking to him. No prophets were near. Samuel had died. So what does Saul do? Saul turns to the Lord. No. He goes and seeks a pagan necromancer to find the answers he's looking for. At that moment, the kingship was over for Saul. And he was dead within 24 hours, as we'll see next. What does David do? He seeks God. He goes to the priest for answers. He does the right thing and seeks the Lord's guidance instead of somebody else's or a false prophet. And often we think of Christ as holding three different offices. He is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. And in a way, there's a lot of people throughout Scripture who also demonstrate that as what we call a type of Christ, as somebody who is showing us what the true Messiah will look like. And so David acts kingly as Christ is king. And here, David, in a sense, acts priestly on taking the ephod upon himself and acquiring of the Lord as to what they shall do. And the Lord answers him. He says, you will both overcome the Amalekites and you will rescue your people and all the spoils will return. And then what do we see with David showing Christ-like mercy? Well, he extends mercy to two types of people here in this text. First is the mercy to God's people. Uh, remember, again, the people have just traveled a three days hike uh, through rough terrain. They didn't have cars, they didn't have carriages, they didn't have technology to get them through, they didn't have GPS. And so they're trekking and finally arrive at their hometown. You can imagine the relief. We are done, we're home, no more traveling. What do they find? Treachery. And so David, as they return, his 600 men who are with them are only cut down now to 400. 200 of the group uh, decide that they want to stay behind. But they, they need a break. I need, I, need to, I need to sit down. I can't do it any longer. And again, sometimes we as Christians have to realize that 
this life that we endure is hard to bear. And sometimes our zeal just pushes us past that moment. But other times, we become burned out and and burdened and overwhelmed with the weight of life. And David, the future king, the military leader, recognizes that these 200 people have become like that. They can't possibly bear any more. They have succumbed to so much that they now need a rest. And some of us have fought spiritual battles for longer than we care to admit. And we also need that rest. And it is okay for us to take that rest in the Lord, to pause the battle for a moment and recognize that we need reinvigorated in the Lord. And so what does David do? He extends mercy to them. He doesn't say, just pick up your bootstraps and let's go. We're going to take the hill. He says, you guys stay behind. Me and the 400 men, we will go and fight on your behalf. Not only does David, as a good king, show mercy to God's people, but he also shows mercy to a foreigner as well. Not merely a foreigner, right, but an enemy. A a true enemy in the sense of an enemy. As they were traversing the terrain to free their families, David and his men come across an Egyptian. And they show hospitality by providing for him. But this Egyptian man was part of the raiding crew that destroyed Ziklag. And certainly, you can imagine in the thoughts of the Israelites that they have a bad taste in their mouth for anything related to Egypt. They were held in captivity in Egypt. Egypt is evil to them. Persecution. All of the worst trials they have faced. So this man was a reminder of captivity. And he was a reminder of the people that destroyed their city. And we're not told of this man's fate explicitly, but he tells David that as long as they don't kill him, or give him back to their master, he will show them the way. And since David is actually shown where the raiding band is found, it is safe to assume that David exercised mercy to an enemy of God. This passage has, again, so many Christ-focused themes in it. We are reminded of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan was an enemy of Israel. The Samaritans were detested by Israel. At one time, they tried to prohibit the building, the rebuilding of the temple after the exile. And so so also David, an enemy to the Egyptians, and vice versa, the Egyptian, an enemy to David, shows mercy to him. He has every right in the book to enforce kingly justice. But he withholds his justice and extends mercy. Again, is this not what Jesus has done for us, brothers and sisters? God had every right to lay upon us the judgment we rightly deserve. Yet Christ himself, our good shepherd, our great high priest, took upon himself the wrath of God on our 
behalf. He himself showed us true mercy in the most pure sense of mercy. How indebted are we to such a gracious God? And then finally, justice against the Lord's enemies. Even though David does, in fact, extend mercy to this Egyptian man, uh, justice is still enacted upon the people who have sacked Ziglag, who have taken the spoils and their sons and daughters and wives. And as these enemies of God are now celebrating this great victory, I mean, this is David, the great military warrior, and we have successfully taken everything from him. They're dancing, they're celebrating this great victory, and David dives headlong into battle. Nearly a 24-hour period of time where uh, David and his 400 men are exacting God's justice on behalf of the Lord. And all that which was taken, right, was brought back to David into his hand, including his wives. Only a small contingent of 400 men, this great army, this vast Philistine army, only 400 were fortunate enough to escape via camelback uh, and, and run away. So David then goes, he returns the spoils back to those who are left behind. And there's a bit of tension that arises in the text from those who are part of the offensive. Those who actually went out into battle <clears throat> are saying, we, we want our stuff. The, the people who didn't contribute don't get anything. Verse 22, Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. See a little bit of selfishness and covetousness in those men, the possessions these men had fought for and not wanting to give it back. They wanted the spoils to themselves. But David ensures that these 200 weary men will receive what is due to them as well. Again, verses 23 through 25, David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Again, David, as a king, is really demonstrating true kingliness, the the essence of what it is to be a king. He recognizes and shows mercy to his own people who are unwilling to go out into battle, but still says, you have a right to what was taken from you. It's almost a bit reminiscent of uh, Jesus in the parable of the workers in the vineyard uh, from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. If you remember, 
uh, uh, <clears throat> these workers go out to tend a vineyard. Uh, some are hired very early in the morning. Some are hired at the very last hour. Uh, but what happens? The, the vineyard worker, the, the vineyard owner, uh, gives each the same wage that's due to them. And so David, likewise, is saying that there were some who were there from start to finish, but there are also some who are going to reap this at the last hour. Yet, at the same time, the spoils should be divert, uh, dispersed accordingly to all. So also, there were some who followed Christ from the day he called them. The disciples who wept with Jesus, the disciples who ate with Jesus, they ministered with Jesus, they were as close to Christ as possible, and they inherited their reward, and so too, people like the thief on the cross at the very last hour are able to be saved as well. They are extended mercy. And truly, at the end of the day, all that is ours is the Lord's anyways. These men were selfish in thinking that they truly own a possession of themselves. And David recognizes this and disperses it accordingly. But it doesn't stop there. David ensures that his tribe, the tribe of Judah, is also given part of the spoils from the enemy. Every place that David had roamed and found refuge as he's hiding from Saul is now giving a portion of the allotment. Generous giving should embolden us to be givers of our own possessions. Just as we read in Acts 2, the, the willingness of the early church to just give back to their people. I'm not saying we have to be monks and get rid of everything that we own, but being generous, being gracious with what the Lord has given to us and dividing that amongst the church so that the church can grow, that God's people can continue to be ministered to, that they can grow in the love and adoration of the Lord, that we can bring more souls into Christ's kingdom through the preaching and teaching of his word. And again, this passage ultimately gives us an insight uh, into Christ's kingship over all things, right? David knew what it meant to find strength in the Lord. We also find strength in our Lord, who has redeemed us from our sins. He's freed us from our bondage. David knew what it was like to extend mercy, not only to his people, but to his enemies as well, even as Christ extends mercy to his own people and to enemies. Before conversion, we were enemies with God, yet Christ extends mercy to us. David knew of true justice as well. He executed justice against his enemies by destroying them. And so too will Christ return and execute justice against his enemies as well. So also did David give back the spoils to all people who fought with him or were left behind. And Christ himself, our great high priest, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, gives us freely, graciously, 
willingly all the benefits of his redemption that we may be free in Christ. With that, let us go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are taken back by how good you are to your people. Lord, we are so thankful to open your scriptures and see the thread of redemption all throughout that which you have given to us. We're thankful that we can see Christ in those whom you have set forth before he came in his earthly ministry. And Lord, we are thankful for the gift that you have given us, the price that has been paid, the victory that has been won on our behalf. Lord, we are indebted servants to you all the days of our lives, here, now, and forever after. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.